Welcome back to iDran Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, and today I'm wearing a vote pin. It actually says, make a plan to vote, because I think right now that is one of the most important things that anyone can do, uh, including in a few weeks in Georgia. And it has been just two weeks since the midterms and less time since we've actually known the results because it took some time to to get those results finalized. Uh, We have a lot to unpack and we have two experts today to help us do that. And I know I wanna ask them the same questions that I think all of you have. It's all of us are wondering, what was the messaging that worked in this last election? How did the Democrats manage to retain the Senate and really tamp down any red wave that was predicted. Um, What impact did Trump have on the election results? What impact did President Biden have? And what can both parties learn? And how important was the Gen Z vote? Um, I mean, Victor has become the face of the Gen Zers and the the strategist for them. And um, so, and I really want to know how much impact they had. And of course, I'm a woman. I want to know how much women mattered. Uh, how much did abortion affect how women voted? What about people of color? So this is a conversation that all of us are going to learn from. And we have two great guests, Simon Rosenberg and John Delavope. And Victor, why don't you introduce them? Let our audience know who these great people are. Absolutely. So Simon Rosenberg is currently the president of NDN and New Policy Institute and is a veteran of two presidential campaigns and was someone who predicted that there would be no red wave in this election, which proved accurate. He's also huge on Twitter, and I've been a long fan of uh, just his analysis and kind of pushing back against the narrative that a lot of uh, pollsters and pundits were uh, pushing before the election. So uh, welcome to the show, Simon. It's great to be here. And John Delavope is someone who I have been on TV with quite a few times, and we're actually going to go on PBS later today. Uh, So it's kind of a tag team here. And so he's the director of polling at Harvard and author of Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. I highly recommend the book. It's really, really good. Uh, He predicted that there would be a Gen Z. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Thank you, John, for joining us today. So let's start with, yeah, uh, let, let's just start with the messaging and the stuff that happened in the midterm election. Uh, let's start there. The Republicans were touting election denials, and most of those candidates lost, particularly in swing states. Um, so let's start with what was their messaging? What was the DNC or the Democratic Party, the overall Democratic uh, message? And President Biden didn't seem to agree with that. He had his own. So let's talk about that and which was the right one, which really worked. Um, you want to start, Simon? Sure. <clears throat> I think in many ways, <clears throat> this, there's a sort of a simple answer to your questions, which was this was a stay the course election. You know, there was a sense that Democrats had done a good enough job and Republicans were still a little bit too crazy. And I think it really came down to something that simple. I mean, there's a lot of other things we can get into Um, But Joe Biden, the reason I think Democrats did so well, particularly in the battleground states, was there was a sense that things were better, right? We've gotten to the other side of COVID. Biden had, you know, the economy was historic unemployment, you know, the low, we are at historic lows in the unemployment rate, the poverty rate, the uninsured rate, that we passed these major bills. And that people felt that after all the chaos the last couple of years, that things were kind of settling down. And very few incumbents lost of either party anywhere in the country. It's kind of an extraordinary thing, right, given that there was, this was supposed to be a change election. It was actually a stay-the-course election. And I think the only way that that would have happened if there was, a, there was a broad sense that Joe Biden had been a good president and things were better. And so to me, that's really the central dynamic of what we just saw in this election. And what's worrisome, what has to be worrisome for the Republicans going forward is that same basic dynamic could apply to the next election too, um, you know, where the Democrats had done a good job and they are still a little bit too crazy, and and that you know whether Joe Biden decides to run for re-election or not. I mean, this basic kind of post Dobbs, because um, it was really Dobbs. To your point, Jill, it was really Dobbs that became the gateway for most voters to say 
these guys have just gone too far. It's just too much, right? They, it, I just can't do it. I can't vote for them. And they lost a lot of Republican votes in this election. Not just did not just Democrats voted for them, for Democrats, but Republicans voted for Democrats. And so, you know, this is a very encouraging election. And I'm quoted in a CNN piece that just ran about how there's sort of two, there were two elections. There were the elections inside the battleground and a few Democratic states where we overperformed our 2020 numbers. And then there were the, uh, the election outside the battleground where we didn't have our big campaigns and we didn't spend a ton of money on TV. And there we underperformed our numbers, which is why the Republicans are leading in the national vote, but we actually, we were the ones that had the good election, right? Those, both of those things can be true at the same time if you understand there were really two separate elections. And the elections in the battleground and why it matters is that's where the presidential race is going to be fought in 2024. And what we just showed is that we can stay in control of our own destiny in the most important states heading into the 2024 election. So as someone who won't give up on those other places, what is what we learned? What could be done in those places? Well, just briefly, then I want to turn to John because he's got great insights about the election is that, you know, what we learned here is that the Republican noise machine is very powerful. It really drove the media commentary of this whole election. They're much louder than we are as a party. And it's something that we really have to confront. And where we were able to spend money and run real campaigns, we were in control of our own destiny for the most part. Where we didn't, we weren't. And that's the lesson, that we have to both be good on the ground, control the races, but we have to do a better job at challenging their dominance of the national media narrative every day. We have to be far more aggressive. As an old war room guy, I worked in the war room 30 years ago, the war room was about winning the information war every day. We have to get much more purposeful about doing the things that work this time, but doing more to control the national media narrative. I think we can. I think the, these things are within our power to do, which is why I remain very optimistic about the next two years. Yeah, I, I think just a, just a couple of... Um of additional points to, to make to, to Simon's point about this being a state of the course election. When you actually like take a couple of steps back and you look at the high quality polling, you know, from the major networks over the course of the last year, um, I noticed, you know, uh, a few weeks ago that the very first, I think it was the NBC survey um, a year ago, October had Republicans up, I think plus two. And over the course of several polls over, over the last year, their final their their final uh, number was I think Republicans plus plus one. The point is, after a ground war in Europe, after inflation, gas prices, Dobbs, shootings in supermarkets, shootings in schools, the historic legislative record and executive action record from the Biden administration over the course of of the summer months. Essentially, the race really didn't change when you look back over the course of that year. And you would think on multiple occasions, there would have been opportunities for Republicans to, to take advantage of, of some of those, quote, headwinds, but they were never able to. So I think that was an early indicator for me that this was um, unlikely to be the kind of conventional race that so many pollsters and pundits thought it, it, it might be. I think that's kind of part one. And the other part, I think... When we talk about the battleground versus the other states is this interesting combination of like the, the negative and the what I would call the negative and the positive partisanship. You know, this this really interesting, uh, I think, kind of connection between Dobbs bringing people um, in in terms of identifying the very, very specific and tangible ways that politics can matter in someone's extremely personal uh, life and, and life choices, one matched with uh, as we talked about the the bipartisan as well as the executive action from the from the administration. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons to see, I think a lot of data points along the way to indicate that this would not be the traditional midterm cycle that so many of us or so many others might have been expecting. So I have a question uh, for you, John, and, and that's about kind of polling and, and like you said, the narratives going into the election. Um, one of the 
kind of pieces that really stuck out to me before the midterm election. This was like a couple days before Politico came out with a piece <laughs> with the title that young voters are MIA uh, in this election. I'm wondering, because you do this Harvard Youth Poll uh, twice a year, and I'm wondering kind of how you do that poll and what you think maybe the kind of mainstream polling uh, people, uh, pundits, well, got well, wrong thanks, about uh, Victor. Yeah, just real quick, you know, it's been 22 years um, of, of us doing this poll, which means we roughly have over 100,000 interviews, right? Quantitative interviews with younger Americans from the eldest millennial to, um, to members of Gen Z and countless numbers of focus groups where we know it really well. And, um, and, 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 you know, the average national survey or state survey has a couple of hundred, you know, at best oftentimes of this, of this generation. Plus we have uh, trend lines going back, as we said, a couple of generations. What was most interesting to me, um, Simon and I talked about this on his podcast um, last week, wasn't the October survey. It was the survey that we conducted in March of this year, which indicated despite the fact that younger Americans um, increased their level of disapproval for President Biden by double digits year to year, despite that, despite them questioning the efficacy of their political engagements, okay, and what um, and the impact that it could make, despite those factors, which are generally kind of predictive of whether or someone will turn out to vote, despite those things, um, we found that nearly as many young people indicated that they were likely to vote this cycle as the 2018 cycle, which, of course, um, as you know, was historic in terms of the level of participation, not just by a couple of points, but essentially from 2014 to 2018, the number of young people under 30 who voted doubled. Okay, and 2014 was not an outlier. 2014 was essentially the average of the last 40 years of participation among younger people. Right. So heading in a couple months before the illegal leak, before Dobbs, before the executive and bipartisan legislative action from the White House, we saw that this generation would likely continue this enhanced era, this enhanced sense of civic engagement from 18 to 20 to this cycle. And then we're able to have that benchmark or that baseline and we can see it increase over the course of the summer, specifically with young women and with, with, with college students. So what is disappointing for me is that having had such a significant track record uh, of, 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 of understanding youth attitudes of some elections like the 2016 presidential primary, when they weren't participating at the levels I thought they might have called that straight, 2014 called that straight too in terms of underperformance and turnout. You know, um, I think there were there are too many people who just for whatever reason weren't looking at the data, instead believing in this conventional wisdom that obviously uh, turned out um, not to be so wise. Can I just jump in and to say yeah. one thing about this is that you have to remember that the red wave narrative meant that the Republicans were energized and the Democrats weren't, right? That's what that meant. Mm -hmm. And and so to, to get to that place, you had to then say also, well, young people aren't energized and women aren't energized. Women would be caring more about eggs costing 30 cents more than the loss of their bodily autonomy, which was always in some ways the most ridiculous thing that anybody was arguing during the entire election. And what happened in the election was the opposite of the red wave, right? It wasn't just something different than the red wave. It was that we were energized and we overperformed and they underperformed. And so what was important to recognize is there was an effort to convince people that this was happening. And in to do that, you needed to attack any signs of higher intensity of Democrats. So the youth stuff that John did, John's poll was very influential to me in my thinking about what was ha gonna happen in the election. The arguments that we saw spiking participation and registration in, with women, in particular young women, all of those were dismissed as being mirages, not true, you know, no one's showing up, even though we saw the early vote was another sign of this incredible intensity of the Democrats. And so it's just, it wasn't that the data was wrong, it's that the analysis was wrong. People really blew this election in a way that I think has really significant implications for political journalism, commentary in the media about our politics going forward, because it wasn't a small miss. It was a gargantuan miss by virtually everybody. And, and, and it was nothing like 2020. And so, and what it was done, it was done in order to convince Democrats that they weren't showing up and the exact opposite happened. You know, thanks to the, listen, 
the heroes of this election are the American people, right? I mean, they're the ones who went out and did the work and got this done and made sure that MAGA didn't seize control in the way that would have been damaging to our democracy. And I just want to say hats off to all the people, all the big citizens who did their part in the last couple months, you know, to have an historic election. And, and certainly democracy is better for it today. Victor, I'm so excited that you are finally starting to learn how to cook and that it's partly because of, or maybe entirely because of HelloFresh, which as you know, I am a huge fan of. It's a great way to save. It's a great way to make meals. You get everything delivered right to your doorstep. What do you think? You've tried it now. I agree with you completely, Jill. I uh, went from not being able to cook to now being able to cook, cook something. Uh, and that's the joy of HelloFresh because they give you uh, really just kind of precise ingredients to be able to make these great dishes. I mean, the other uh, week I, I made something with salmon and I made a crispy Parmesan chicken. I mean, it was delicious. And, and I felt very proud of myself, even though I had some help from someone else who cooked. But it was still like the process of cooking, not being able to uh, you know, go to the grocery store and, and haul all that stuff, which a lot of time just getting these things delivered right to your doorstep is really convenient i think yeah with hellofresh you get farm fresh pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep you can skip trips to the grocery store and count on hellofresh to make home cooking easy fun and affordable that's why it's america's number one meal kit so as your calendar starts to fill up this season you can count on hellofresh to get some of your free time back by making cooking simple and quick. Each recipe and pre-portioned ingredients come right to your door so you can skip the grocery store and a lot of prep. Plus, you'll be able to save money on dinner with HelloFresh and put it toward your holiday shipping. Uh, shopping. HelloFresh <laughs> is che cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% less expensive than takeout. It really is. I have been using it now for a long time and it is a joy. HelloFresh even works with your schedule. Their plans are flexible and you can change your meal preferences, update your delivery day, and change your address with just a few taps on the HelloFresh app. So if you're going away for the holidays, you can have your meals sent to your new location. Imagine getting fresh quality produce from the farm to your door in less than a week, allowing you to enjoy the incredible flavors of the winter season right from home. Go to HelloFresh.com slash iGen70 and use code iGen70 for 70% off free shipping. That's 70% off. Um, remember, go to HelloFresh.com slash iGen70 and use the code iGen70 for 70% off plus free shipping. That's iGen70. You can also look for the link to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit in our show notes. Do you one think that the fact that there was that narrative of Democrats aren't energized, they aren't going to vote, actually made Democrats go out and vote because they saw that if they didn't, <laughs> there was such a big risk that that may have actually helped promote get out the vote. Jill, I, I'm very divided about that question. I will tell you that as somebody who went out and did briefings for gra grassroots groups from June on to say, we have a shot, you know, we got to work hard. And I did this for, you know, dozens and dozens of groups, reaching tens of thousands of people. People were down. You know, our family was down. I think it hurt the number of volunteers that we had, the amount of hours they spent. I think, I think it was, it could have been both, right? It could have been both that it suppressed our intensity and in the work of the of the upper and the people who do the work, right? I was like the shrink for the Democratic Party in the last six months saying, no, we can do this. Trust me, like we got a shot, right? And, and I was being asked to do this because I was like the only one arguing this and people were really down. And so I, I think it, it could have been both, Jill. I mean, I don't think we're ever gonna really know, right? But I do think it's possible that we saw a spike in participation because of the fear of, of MAGA. But I also think it hurt our field operations, our money, our campaigns. It could have been significant enough you know, to have cost us the House. Sorry, and, and, specifically you know, and, in the New so, York, California yeah, go races, go ahead, timing, where we, we, they didn't have the benefit of the battleground and a lot of the, of the yeah. ground support, right, that yeah. we saw in battleground states. 
I mean, it, it the question of how Democrats got so down in the last 12 months and how we got so down on each other, down on our president, down on our country, down on everything, is something we have to talk about because we're at our best when we're a party of hope and optimism, when we're the party that believes in a better tomorrow. And we got we don't have the luxury of being down and we don't have the luxury of infighting. We don't have the luxury of spreading negative sentiment and doubt. We we have to counter the pessimism of MAGA with the optimism of the center left. And and we really lost our way a little bit in that regard. And it's something that we have to be honest about, um, you know, in, in the family, because we're going to have another really tough election in the next two yeah. years. And and losing is not an option, folks. And so, you know, we got to get the grumpies off uh, next time and, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and be better to each other. And frankly, be more proud of our party, our president and our country, which I think is something that you know, I think Victor and I, I think Victor's been an incredible voice for this, you know, and it's an honor to be with him today. And I just want to say, Jill, I'm a co total crazy fan of yours. And it's just great to to be with you as well today. Thank you. I, Victor has been very good about the facts. He has been promoting. Here's what the Democrats have accomplished. Here's what President Biden did. And I think to your point, that's one of the things that's really important and essential. I also I, I choose to keep myself optimistic by reading uh, Hubble's nightly newsletter. He is unfailingly optimistic, but he bases it on facts and he cites facts and statistics that make you go, yeah, I get it. And he never said we will win. He said, we can do this and here's right. why. And right. so for those of you who are getting depressed, I highly recommend signing on to his Substack newsletter it really keeps me happy and optimistic <laughs> so if, if i can if i can jump in really quickly one of the things that we were talking about before we went live is just this uh kind of wave from pollsters and uh, like you said simon it wasn't the data that they missed but rather the analysis of the data that they uh got wrong and i'm wondering for maybe both you and um john how are these pollsters still uh going after all of these years they got it wrong in 2016, they got it wrong again in 2020, and then they seem to have got it wrong mostly in 2022 as well. Uh, so, I'm how you know, what should we be making of the polls that we're seeing and uh, the future of polls? Be kind, be kind, be kind to uh, to me at least. Now. John, I'll start. <laughs> I, I, I think so, I know, I know, I, I, I know. So, um, so listen, I will say that I think what happened this cycle was different from what happened in the last two. It, and first of all, I think in 2016, the polls weren't really wrong, but the election changed a lot at the end. And so, you know, it, it's why some of the state polls, there wasn't updated state polls. And so those end up, we're essentially talking about a different election than ended up happening at the end. I mean, the FBI intervention in 2016 dramatically changed the election and was and was critical for Trump's victory, right? If that hadn't happened, I think Hillary would have won by five or six points. And so I think the I don't think the polls were wrong. I think the election changed, which it can, right? Elections change, right? 2020, there was a, a miss of what they called the shy Trump voter. I mean, they missed by three to four points, underestimated the Republican performance pretty universally across the board, across the country. What happened this time was the media polls, the independent polls, were actually really accurate, right? Marist, I mean, I've done a lot of writing about this, you know, the the Georgia polls, the Arizona polls, all the independent media polls were pretty spot on. I mean, the last NBC News poll um, was really good. For example, the national poll was good. It was that what happened this time was that the Republicans flooded the zone with these very R-heavy, Republican-heavy polls which pushed all the polling averages down. And so let me give you an example. In Georgia, the final five polls, independent media polls, had Warnock winning by three points. The final flood of Republican polls had Walker winning by four and a half points. It was an eight-point difference, right? It was like you're talking about two completely different elections. And the Republican polls were wrong. And they were intentionally trying to push the averages down to reinforce this red wave narrative. And what's disappointing to me is that so many very you know, commentators who get paid a lot of money to interpret all this stuff to the American people should have been more honest about what was happening with this Republican campaign. I mean, something like 70 to 80 percent of the polls done in the final month of the election were being done by Republican firms, many of whom had no experience polling in those states. It's unclear why they were even there. And in, and in a typical election, right, it would have been it would have been a third or a quarter of the polls would have been Republican. This time there were 70, 80 percent. We've never seen anything like this before. So there was a deliberate effort to change the understanding of the election. And I just want to say, I don't we don't know why yet, but let me just postulate something. And it gets to something Jill asked earlier. 
I think the notion that there was a popular uprising in the United States after Dobbs ended was something that was outside the moral imagination of the Republican Party. They believed that they were doing something so virtuous and so important and had worked on it for so long that when there was an actual popular uprising, as we saw in the special elections, in the voter registration numbers in Kansas, in the early vote, that they had to change the story. Because if the story of this election is that women rose up and the country rose up to fight the Republicans after Dobbs, it means that the entire sort of internal Republican thing is in collapse, right? It means that the SCOTUS, this radical extreme SCOTUS may have destroyed the Republican party for the next 10 years meaning that they don't have the moral authority to keep going, right? So the consequences of the narrative that was emerging, which is women were rising up, ha they had to fight it. They had to create some alternative story for their own internal salvation as a, as a political entity. And, and they were what's disturbing is that they were successful at it. And it's just that the couple voters points to add, if I could, God. just a couple of points to add. Also, kind of for us consumers, a couple of things. This is the second, yeah, I think, midterm cycle in a row where we saw a popular uprising that changed the electorate, right? And for me, this this uh, campaign looked a lot like the campaign from 2018 in terms of the popular uprising from, you know, the 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 families, you know, um, of those um, uh, victims from Parkland, Florida. Right. Who 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 organized, who registered. And just like we saw this summertime uh, of which, you know, uh, Simon and Tom would remind us on a regular basis on Twitter, um, wherever there was an, a march or rally, registrations increased. Not only that, but when there when there was time for elections, things happened that we didn't expect. Mm -hmm. AOC beat Crowley in 2018. Kansas happened. So to me, it was the similar pattern that we saw in 2018, rather than fueled just by, you know, primarily through younger people and their concern about the NRA and losing their lives going to school. We saw, you know, kind of women and losing their kind of uh, autonomy of their own body as uh, as essentially the tip of the tip of the spear on that regard. The other thing I just want to point out is as we're looking at these polls, I still want to know not only were these Republican pollsters flooding the zone, Simon, right? But who paid for those? Are you willing? I'm not buying necessarily that all of those yeah. Republican firms just out of took money out of their own pocket to conduct tens of thousands of interviews, okay? And why can't well, journalists, who are some of them doing debriefs yeah, with some of these yeah, posters, ask them that question? Who sponsored it? Hmm. Yeah, good. John, trust me, there are journalists trying to figure this out. <laughs> and, 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 uh, yeah. What you guys are saying does remind me of something I heard on Bill Maher, and I'm not saying he's the most reliable source, but, um, what he said was that the attention of the media has been focused on the extremes, which represent approximately 7% of each party. So on the extreme right, you have a small group that really is getting all the attention. The extreme left gets a lot of attention. How do we control this? How do we stop the Republicans from publishing fake, and maybe they aren't fake, but skewed reports, skewed polls? How do we get the media to focus on the mainstream stuff. What can we do about that? Well, to Joy Reid's credit, I mean, the way that this became well known was that Joy Reid had me on her show two weeks before the election, and she was very brave and courageous for letting me go air this um, because it embarrassed a lot of people that were important people interpreting the election who had not acknowledged this was happening, wasn't in, and offered some kind of window into what we're seeing. And, and I, I do think, look, I, I said today on Twitter that what was hard for me, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've been talking to national reporters and having these kind of conversations about presidential elections for 30 years. And, I've and I'm a former journalist, and I've, I've never seen the media get so bamboozled as they were this cycle and believing you know, crazy memes again and again and again and again. And it's very worrisome to me. I think this was asymmetrical, Jill. I don't agree with Bill Maher. I think this was really that the Republican noise machine kind of bullied the national media into believing things that were so obviously untrue. And what is what was worrisome to me is that there weren't more sophisticated commentators kind of being self-aware 
that there was one party that had spent the last two years lying about the last election. Maybe they were lying about this election too, right? And certainly that was not a big leap given what had happened. I mean, the truth is lying about doing what John talked about is dropping 40 to 50 polls and spending a million dollars is like miniature golf compared to what they did in, in January of 2021, where they tried to install a fake president into the White House, right? And so the idea that somehow MAGA has become something that is unfamiliar to all of us in a democracy, in a, in a healthy democracy, is still not adequately in front of mind of many of the people and, and there's a, in our commentariat and that the normalization bias, as I call it, of how crazy the Republican Party has gotten has not really changed the way the media talks about them. It has, however, changed the way that people vote. And the American people know this. I mean, the fear of MAGA and the fear of their craziness is the set has driven the last three elections. And it was very instrumental in driving this one. And at some point, the national media is going to stop normalizing and creating this left-right duopoly where there's symmetry between the two parties. There's vast asymmetry, in fact. And I think that's difficult for the mainstream media to really Yeah, no, deal this with is this ways. is an important conversation. John, you, I know you've and got a lot of thoughts about this. To Jill, like I don't know if you can. I don't know if we should, you know, um uh, uh you know um not allow pollsters to uh share um their results. Okay, they I think pollsters should be able to do whatever they want. I think it's incumbent upon the media, it's incumbent on people like us to essentially kind of apply that filter and ask these kinds of questions, right? We're not going to ever prevent some pollster from, from sharing data that could completely be made out of uh, whole cloth. So I think the, the, the responsibility is, is on us, one. The second thing is it also is our responsibility, I think, to actually listen to people, right? To, as we talked about earlier, to talk to your family, talk to your neighbors, Talk to your children, right? Talk to other Americans, whether that's, you know, um, kneecap to kneecap in conversations or whether it's a focus group or something else. But a lot of pollsters don't invest the time. A lot of the media do not invest the time to actually listen to people. And if you did that, you would understand that, yes, gas prices, inflation, that hurts people. Okay, that hurts people. But most Americans appreciate the fact that is temporary compared to losing rights that generations of Americans fought for, that is anything but temporary. And when you lose that, what the slippery slope is to other things. Like the fact that like, that's a surprise. The fact that since Donald Trump came down on that escalator in 2015, we are still thinking about politics in the same conventional way. I'm sorry, that, that completely boggles my mind when we saw historic turnout after turnout after turnout. Can I, can I make one other point on that, what John was saying? Let me give you an example, Jill, of the kind of way that things went awry in the polling, right? Uh, and in the analysis, not in the data. And this is a really important distinction, right? So yes, inflation was the number one issue, but two thirds of voters didn't blame Joe Biden for the inflation. Hmm. So that meant that, yes, people were concerned about it, but it didn't mean that it was actually hurting Democrats. And guess what? That one third who blamed Joe Biden were never going to vote for him anyway. And so something as simple as that, which is going deeper into the analysis of the data instead of accepting that when the Republicans scream inflation, 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 then everybody says Joe Biden's you know, finished, the Democrats are finished. I, are, I had been arguing since December of last year in my own writing of that the inflation issue was not playing out in real voters' lives the way the media was saying because people didn't actually blame Biden for it. This was not some crazy, you know, I'm not some ninja chess player doing crazy things, right? This is kind of basic data analysis. And there was a real, like, fundamental breakdown in this cycle where every time Republicans screamed, the, you know, I think the I think two things have happened, right? The Republicans, there was a general belief that Democrats were going to have a bad election, the fundamentals were going to kick in. People were looking for the red wave. The Republicans are screaming that the red wave was coming and it never came, of course. Right. But the other thing that that I, I think happened is that I do think that break because of Twitter and social media, breaking from the herd has become more painful for people mm -hmm. that if you break from the herd on Twitter, you get 
blasted, right? And I think a lot of journalists, I'm in politics. I'm used to getting blasted. It's what we do for a living, right? And I, you know, I've been getting blasted for 30 years. I think for journalists, when people started coming after them, I think that they haven't really gotten to a place where they're really comfortable with that yet. And, and that they can be pushed around a little bit by when people start, you know, getting pissed at them on Twitter, even if that speech is inauthentic, even if it's controlled by inauthentic accounts and it's not real engagement. And I think that, I think I feel like her journalism today is more powerful than it's ever been in my 30 plus years of doing this. Now. So I, I, have, I have a question about some of the things that we saw in terms of who turned out to vote and who didn't turn out to vote, what type of people uh, turned out to vote, who didn't. So I guess to begin, one of the things that I thought was fascinating with this election was that among young voters, it was overwhelmingly young Democrats who turned out to vote and young Republicans either stayed home or didn't vote and really as high as rates as 2018 or barely increased compared to 2018. I'm wondering, do both of you have any theories on why that is? And then also why uh, the overwhelming majority of people of color turn out to vote, but the kind of biggest uh, demographic. I do think in terms of, I mean, one of the early indicators, and I think this was a relatively late decision on the early indicators was, um, you know, the early uh, voting that Tom Bonnier and Simon were um, were sharing with us in seeing, well, overall, the early vote among all young people um, was depressed relative to previous elections. It was more depressed among younger Republicans, certainly like in places like Pennsylvania, where we we now know mm-hmm. that the exit polls estimated that John Fetterman won an astounding 70 percent of the youth vote. Right. Uh, including close to 60 percent of the young white youth vote. So um, but I also have been listening and doing focus groups with a lot of um, conservative voters in rural places in Pennsylvania and other places. And I think that, I think Dobbs had an effect on them, right? I think that um, it, it certainly kind of depressed, you know, there's no love certainly for, um, for, for Democrats. These are Republicans who have voted for Trump in the past. But I think in the final days of this, um, I think they made the decision to stay home. Listen, we're not going to know final numbers in terms of who turned out in what proportions, et cetera, for weeks or months. You know, we'll look at the, the Pew validated survey. We'll look at the, 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 the voter file registration, et cetera, and as well as the census. But I think Dobbs did have a negative effect among, among younger people. But again, um, we'll wait and see when the final data comes in. Yeah, I think it, it kept some uh, Republicans home, Jill. Yeah, sorry. I, I think that's very consistent with the data that we saw. And let me just go through the basic argument that Tom, Tom and I were making, which is that after Dobbs happened, you had five House special elections. Democrats overperformed their 2020 numbers in those five races by seven points. Shocking numbers, shocking high levels of performance. The fact that we'd even be anywhere near 2020 as opposed to being over it was something that we didn't think we were going to be able to do. And then we saw even bigger margins in Kansas. And then you saw a huge spike in Democratic voter registration after Dobbs, particularly with women and particularly with young women. And then you saw Democratic candidates raising record amounts of money all over the country, Republicans not raising any money at all in many of their races. And so what we were saying a few weeks before the election was, all the indicators of intensity, the way you measure intensity, were all very positive for us and frankly crappy for them. Like not just good for us, crappy for them. And this is what John is saying is that I think Dobbs was a really negative event in the Republican electorate. Right. And and then we had we had the special we had the we had the early vote come, which showed the same trend, Democratic performance, Republican underperformance. And we went into election day saying, look, what we've been looking at for the last five months is all the indicators of Democratic intensity are up. All the Republican indicators are down. There's a very high likelihood that Demo- that trend will continue through election day. And it did, particularly in the battle of the states. And so I think that, that there's no question that Dobbs was a before and after event in our politics. And that the scariest election results for the Republicans in this election have to be what happened in Michigan, right? Where there was an actual ballot initiative about abortion. Democrats won statewide. Gretchen Whitmer was an incredibly powerful, important leader there. We won statewide by more than 10 points. And we flipped the House and the Senate there, showing the unbelievable upper end of the potency 
of this issue that it splits the Republican coalition, creates downward pressure, particularly among younger Republicans. Why would younger Republicans be more upset about this? Because they're still in childbearing years. This has a material effect. If you're a 24-year-old married couple in Texas, the chance of the, your, if you're a man, of your wife getting pregnant, having a miscarriage, and dying has now dramatically increased because of the Republicans. Your life has been fundamentally altered. And I think that's why the pain for the Republicans on this issue has only just begun. I think this is something that could drive and determine the outcome of the next election, the next election after that, until the Republicans start moving away from what is a medieval and extremist position on, 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 on the woman's right to choose. And so I'm, I, think it's, I think what John is saying is really important that it wasn't just that we did well, they didn't do, they had real performance problems. And Rick Scott, two days after the election, the guy ran the Senate campaign for them, complained bitterly about Republican turnout in the election. So they have to look at this data and be very, very worried about what this means for 2024. It, it is not promising that they have the ability to turn what this basic dynamic around unless they really start unraveling these extremist trigger laws and the extremist laws in the state. It wasn't just Dobbs ending. It was the implementation of these extremist laws. That's unlikely. The Republicans right now are tethered to two dramatically unpopular things. The, you know, the, the extremist abortion position and MAGA itself and Donald Trump. Those things have shown help. You know, they have been a drag on their party. And it's not clear to me they have the ability to extricate themselves from either of these basic orientations before the 2024 election. I'm not sure they have the ability or even the desire to extricate right. themselves. So it's really, and, and we need to have you both come back to talk more about, because what I think is going to happen is now that they have the House, they're going to govern in a way that is so bad, they're going to show their true colors and it's going to really hurt them going forward. But let's maybe wrap up with a, a final question about, you know, where do we go from here in terms of the Gen Z vote and maybe the women's vote. But I, I've been saying to Victor all along, this is not a woman's issue about choice. If you get someone pregnant, you have as much interest in whether she has the power to control what happens yep. to that child. Yep. Um, but, but we need to talk about, you know, what do the Democrats need to do to invest in the Gen Z? What do they have to do? You sort of were suggesting that the Republicans spent a lot of money in certain states that kind of quashed our ability to do anything. What what do the Democrats need to do to make sure that the Gen Z Democrats uh, stay with them? And how does Biden's running, how does Trump's running um, impact that? I'll, I'll take that. Thanks, I'll take that first. So I guess Don, the key word there, Jill, yours, is, is invest. In every single day, we have an older, likely more conservative member of the electorate passing away, being replaced by younger, more a more pluralistic, a more kind of inherently kind of progressive younger person. And we cannot, we must not take that for granted. What what governs, I think, um, our, the relationship with with Gen Z is that keyword relationship. This is a this is a a generation that wants to build relationship and trust and not just win a uh, uh, win bunch of transactions. Okay. So the, what the white house needs to do is to continue the things that they have been doing, which is actually delivering on the promises made 2020 and then reminding Gen Z every single day through the bully pulpit, but also through the relationships they have with young folks like Victor to remind people, this is what happens when you turn out things change. You elect a Democratic president. You elect a Democratic Senate out of Georgia. We have a first African-American woman on the Supreme Court all the way down the line. You can never talk enough about that. Yeah, and I, sorry, just two quick points. Is that one is that we need to put younger voters at the center of our politics, not at the periphery. I think it's still kind of sometimes the, at the kids' table, literally, in our strategy sessions and in in the way we allocate our money, and that has to change. I mean, young people are driving our margins and are really this, you know, the future of, of the country, the future of our party, and it has to be far more central. And the second thing I just want to say is being the dad of three Gen Z kids, 22 and 20 and 17 years old, 
What I talk to them about is how the investments that Joe Biden and the Democrats have just made in the CHIPS Act, in the infrastructure bill, in this clean, the most historic, the largest clean energy package ever passed by any government in the history of the world, that this has already mm. made their lives better for the next 25 years, that the investments that we've just seen are historic in having Victor's life is going to be much better now because of this. He's going to have more opportunities. And I go back to this thing that my oldest son, not very political, by the way, um, and it's sort of an independent, doesn't really like partisan politics. On election night in 2016, he looked at me and said, so what Donald Trump getting elected means is that I'm going to have fewer opportunities in my life. And it was like one of the most profound things that I'd ever heard anybody say. And I was like, you're right, actually. Well, we just fixed that. We just, as a party and as Joe Biden under his leadership, regardless of his age, he's just made Victor's life far better and fuller of opportunities than it was six months ago. And I am, we can sell that to the cows come home, right? Because they're going to start seeing the manifestation of these investments every month, every year for the rest of their lives. And we're going to come to understand that Joe Biden was an historic presidency that did so much to invest in us winning the, you know, the economic battles against other nations for tomorrow, ensuring greater opportunities, greater freedoms, as John was talking about earlier. And we just have to be loud and proud, frankly, about all that we've done. And because we've done, we've actually acted upon most of the most important things that Gen Z voters really wanted us to do. So we've got a lot to work with here, but it, it comes with also not just getting the policy right, we've got to get the politics right. And there's work to be done there, I think. I think we'll have to call this episode Loud and Proud. Uh, one <laughs> last, very quick question. Uh, what's going to happen in Georgia? And what's the messaging I think that would the, work the, there the you best? Know, the latest poll today God, from the bipartisan team of the other kind of couple of Italian pollsters, Fabrizio and Zaloni, show uh, Warnock up by up by four. That looks that looks solid, I think, um, so far. But, you know, with there's still a couple of weeks to go, yeah. jail. Um, and the, uh, just the other thing to me of note is it seems like in this poll that the generation gap has actually emerged even greater than it was just even a couple of weeks ago. It was, I think, a 28 percent or so in terms of uh, under 45 vote, 61 percent, as I recall, from the cross up of that, which means the under 30 vote must be close to 70 percent. So, um, again, it's all about it's all about turnout. But, you know, so far, I think, you know, Democrats are in, a, are in a strong position. But again, two weeks out is still a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Two, two points. Is that One is that, you know, remember in 2021, we did the unimaginable, which we had never won, a, you know, a runoff election in Georgia, or at least it only been once in the last 30 or 40 years, because those runoffs were designed to make sure Republicans won. Right. And and so because oftentimes our voters didn't show up in runoffs and and because we it's harder to get our voters to vote. Right. So the runoffs were created in order to make sure Republicans won all the elections in Georgia. And in 2021, we did something we had never that was unexpected, which is we actually did better in the runoff than we did in the general election. And so we now have that history underneath us and the voters have that history. Right. That affirmation that they can do this and get this done. And I think that's really important. The second point is. Walker is a lot less attractive on his own than he is as part of a, a team that's going to go keep, you know, flip the Senate for the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And his isolation, this one on one race is just really bad for Walker. He is not an impressive candidate. He is not somebody who you can get excited about voting for. And I think that this was um, oh, the one on one race was always going to be advantageous for us, I think. John, Simon, this has been so fascinating for both of us, and I've learned so much. And Simon, I can't help but think about your son being so right about Trump limiting opportunities and how this election, I think young people really showed up and understood that. And going forward, uh, like you said, John, it's all going to be about investing from the Democratic Party uh, in young voters in our lives. And so um, we are so grateful to have both of you on and for enlightening us about some of the results that we saw in the midterm elections and where we go from here. Fingers thank crossed you. for Georgia. But thank you both for being here. Thank you both. And Victor, you're amazing, man. That's incredible what you've been able to do. And Joe, you're amazing too. But uh, that's a, can we have a round of applause for Victor? I mean, he's been a superstar. Last oh, he's been really, for a young guy, Victor, you're operating at a high level of the game, and it's just impressive to see from the outside. Thank, Thank you, you so much. For what you're doing. Okay.
So that was a really interesting conversation, Jill. Um, we have a few minutes left, and I know we have Georgia in a couple of weeks. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how are you feeling about Georgia and, and where we land politically right now with you know Trump running for office uh, last week and some of the things that happened with a special counsel. Um, how, how, are, how are you doing and, and what do you think about Georgia? Well, in terms of Georgia, I'm feeling good and feel even better after we had this conversation. Yes. Um, the latest polling numbers certainly sound good, although I have to say it's hard for me to believe that it's not even a bigger difference because Herschel Walker is just the ideal bad candidate uh, who cannot speak clearly. He has name recognition, but that doesn't mean he should be in the U.S. Senate. Mm -hmm. uh, means he should play football or maybe moderate a football game of some sort. But um, in terms of everything else going on, I'm feeling pretty good about what's happening. Um, today, the Oath Keepers case went to the jury uh, because we're recording this, I wasn't able to listen to the 11th Circuit arguments um, oh, yeah. about whether or not the subpoenas have to be obeyed. I think the answer will be they do have to be, although it's the 11th Circuit, so I'm not 100% sure. Um, I think that Jack Smith is an ideal person to lead this investigation. I wish it were as a member of the Department of Justice rather than a special counsel, because to me, it hurts the Department of Justice to appoint the special counsel, and it gains them nothing because he's bound by the same rules, and ultimately the attorney general has to make the decision anyway, so it doesn't really make it any more independent. And, of course, the Republican response to it was he's a Democrat, which he isn't. He's a registered oh. independent. Um, he's terrible, which he isn't. He's a great trialer. I think he will bring some value to the investigation. So that's good. Um, there's just a lot going on. But hey, in two days, it's Thanksgiving. And I want to sort of say thank you to President Biden for all that he has done to make things better for your generation and to say happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners. I hope they will have great holidays. And um, I have posted my Jello recipes on the Hashtag Sisters in Law website. Uh, that's my favorite. And today I did a cooking show with Marissa Rothkoff and learned how to make air fryer garlic bread mushrooms, which I will also be bringing with my jello molds to my friend's house for Thanksgiving. And what are you going to be doing for Thanksgiving? Yeah, so I'm actually staying in LA for Thanksgiving. I would have gone back to Chicago uh, had I known about some situations earlier, but it's going to be in LA, going to join some friends for a Thanksgiving dinner party. And uh, you know that I don't cook, but I am, you know, getting into well, you're learning. one of our uh, sponsors for this week. So we'll, uh, I'll keep you guys posted if I uh, make something from HelloFresh and my other cooking adventures. Um, I do just also want to say, Jill, so um, I'm also optimistic about Georgia, but even better news is that the Supreme Court just cleared the way for the House of Representatives uh, Ways and Means Committee to get Trump's tax, re tax returns, uh, six years of those. So um, that's some breaking news that just happened when we were live. Um, but I, I agree with you. I hope all of our audience uh, has a great Thanksgiving and great holidays. We'll be back next week for another episode of iGen Politics. Um, you can subscribe wherever you follow your podcast or on YouTube at youtube.com slash Politicon. And be sure to click the bell for a weekly notification so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next week for another episode of iGen Politics. Mm -hmm.